This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We've got lots of subjects to cover tonight. Uh, Do good things come in small packages? And how about dating doggies? And just how much time do men spend in the bathroom and why? We're also going to be talking about uh, why you should maybe just uh, put on some lipstick and get off the couch. Uh, Date some real people. How many do you have to date in order to find the right one? I get so many emails from people asking me, how do I meet somebody? I can't meet anybody. It's so difficult these days. The the app dating isn't necessarily for everybody. Uh, So I have Holly Martin joining me in a little bit. She is the author of that fine book. Uh, Why don't you just put on some lipstick? And uh, she's going to share her story and her advice for how you can meet somebody. So listen up, everybody who's single out there or looking for someone. Also going to be talking about cannabis. Some of the reasons we're going to clear the smoke on why uh, cannabis may not be 100% for every single medical condition out there and what are some of the risks associated with it and why have we not studied it in the past? What has gotten in the way? And also going to be talking about stress and the size of your brain and then what that does to your life. So I happen to be somebody who thinks that good things come in small packages, but that's not necessarily the case in marriage. And it, and in in fact, sorry about that, there's a study that says tall husbands and short wives have the best marriages, at least for the first 18 years. And then after that, everything's equal. I suppose it doesn't matter. Maybe you're not looking at them anymore after 18 years. But it's not easy being short. Sometimes some people are really bothered by it. You have to use step stools to reach things. Uh, Your dating prospects can be severely limited. And, you know, we don't often see uh, a taller woman with a shorter guy compared to vice versa. So according to a scientific study, tall husbands and short wives have the best marriages. But you know what? It's not just height or length or width (laughs) that comes into play. There's trust, communication, respect, whether or not you actually remember to put that toilet seat down. So there was a study where researchers surveyed 8,000 participants and found a correlation between the husband's height and the wife's happiness. And so the more inches that separated the two physically, the more pleasure the wife felt. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means. She might just be happy in the marriage, but it may not actually equate to having more sexual frequencies. We need to study a little bit more. We need to study this subject a little bit more. Um, But according to the study, the tall men are considered more attractive because it's how we treat people in society. Tall people are, or tall men in particular, because we really, really only do the studies on men. It's time they did them on women. But taller men tend to feel more confident. Men lie about their height frequently. Taller men seem to have higher self-esteem, and they can seem more appealing. They're likely to earn more money, and so, you know, their wives just might be shallow. But with that more money, they might get, um, they might have more satisfaction. But it, it all goes back to evolution, of course, when the tallest, strongest men were the best hunter-gatherers. But you know what? Today, we live in a technological world, and those shorter guys tend to be a little bit more of a brainiac. So <laughs> more engineers, more uh, uh, physicians, and more people using technology, uh, more com- software engineers, etc. as well. So Anyway, I uh, also want to talk a little bit about um, those 
men spending time in the bathroom. We all have to go to the bathroom, but you got to wonder. But, you know, you think that women, when women go into the bathroom, the kids follow. So there's absolutely no break for the woman, but or for women in general, especially if they have a few kids. But men, you wouldn't actually think that men thought, um, felt that spending time in the bathroom would be their quiet time. Um, and so, frankly, there's a lot more men, and it, this speaks to how busy our lives are. So the fact that men are sneaking off to the bathroom so much, and in fact, they're sneaking off a total of seven hours a year, which adds up a lot because, um, you know, you wouldn't think, now this was done by a bathroom company, and the bathroom company is called Pebble Gray, but they polled approximately 1,000 men, and there are a large number of men that are hiding in the toilet for a number of reasons. But you wouldn't think that men go into the toilet to hide. You think they go into the toilet with the paper or the computer and, you know, to take care of business. But no, they're hiding in the toilet, and they're hiding because of, number one, nagging partners. <laughs> number two, overly energetic children. Number three was a shocker to avoid chores. That sounds like a good reason for to me. And then this one is risky, to look at their mobile phone undisturbed. But this is a pretty extreme measure to get some solita- solit- uh, solitary confinement, shall we say? <laughs> some solitude. One in ten male visits to the bathroom are interrupted by something anyway. So you know what? It speaks to how much responsibility men have today. It's not just about... Um, uh, they're just working and coming home, but they're expected to go into the labor and delivery room and they're expected to um, help out with the chores and they're expected to be the you know father of the year and uh, do everything that the mother does, whether she's a stay-at-home mom or not. Uh, I was interested also to see a different kind of dating. Adoptions mark Winnipeg doggy dates. The program is deemed wildly successful. So it was basically fixing up people in Winnipeg uh, with dogs so they can take a dog on a date and apparently it's a howling success and it's called Winnipeg Doggy Dates for anyone listening out in Winnipeg if you've had a date with a dog recently <laughs> you probably have let me know anyway we're going to talk with Holly Martin uh, she has had a hundred dates with real live people not chimerical people real live ones over the course of a year and she's going to share her story and some of her wisdom which she got from Joan Rivers I'm Maureen McGrath and you're listening Listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It is always my pleasure. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. And I want to get down to this dating thing because I get so many emails from you. I see so many people in my clinical practice after they've divorced or they've broken up in a relationship and they have a hard time meeting somebody. Holly Martin is on the line, and she is my guest, and she is the author of Would It Kill You to Put on Some Lipstick? One Year and 100 Dates, How to Look for Love in Your 40s and 50s and Beyond. Good evening, Holly. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm doing well. Oh, fantastic. So uh, thank you so much for being on the program. Very excited about this subject. So many people are lonely. They want to meet somebody. They give up before they even try. You had a couple of divorces and then a breakup, and you set a challenge for yourself. What was that challenge? Well, the challenge was to pick myself up yet again, right, and and to tell myself that I was still young and that there was still hope and that... When I really took an honest look at my life, I still believed in love and partnership. 
And I think we all need that at any point in our lives. And I told myself I was going to um, give it a try. I had I had read an article. Um, Joan Rivers was quoted as talking to a widow who was in a, a position similar to mine. And Joan Rivers challenged her. She said, would it kill you to put on some lipstick, set up one of those you know, on online accounts, go on a hundred dates and you'll meet somebody. And I read that and it really resonated with me and it became the inspiration for my book. So oftentimes people are, are thinking they're too old and you mentioned that you felt you were too old. Do you don't, I mean, I never like to ask a woman how old she is, <laughs> but approximately what age are we talking about here? So when I started the book, I was 44 and I'm now 49 and you know, I got married. I thought, you know, the second time I had a child and I thought I was good for life. I thought I would never have to date again. I was happy to be in a relationship. And and then I think the other thing that happens is in the middle of your life, especially if you're a parent, you know, you've got babies spit up on you. You've got, you're driving the kids around. You're not feeling hot. You know, you're, it, it takes an adjustment to, start to rebuild a life where you're juggling, you're still doing the carpool, but maybe you're going out a couple times a week and starting to make your social life a priority again. And so you had two divorces and a breakup at a fairly young age. And so here you are 44 and thinking, you know, no one's going to love me. Is that, uh, or it's, I'm not, it's not going to happen for me again. Is that kind of, that's how I felt. I mean, it was, um, a lot of it was in my head and, and I think that's really the first starting point is to realize that we're all worthy of love and partnership and it's never too late to, to try. And if we put ourselves out into the world, if we, we go out there with intention, if we choose to go out into the world and, and connect with our communities versus staying at home and watching Netflix and you know, being on our phones and ordering a pizza, we're going to get two different outcomes. And I and I realized in the course of writing this book that that Joan Rivers challenge completely changed my life. And so you took her advice and you set up you you did her challenge, which was to go on a hundred dates in one year. And so, what was that like? That first of all, that challenge that that says busy like <laughs> that's you know a lot of dates, right? It's a lot of dates. And so part of what I did is um, I co-parent with my former husband. And so I told myself that whenever uh, my daughter was with her dad, I could not have a meal by myself. You know, dinner out, I had to go out, maybe just go to a local restaurant, and sit up at the bar. Um, I would just make a point of, you know, either maybe having an online date or just, you know, making my social life a priority. And in, that, in the course of that, I, I really started to rebuild my life. I think what happens when people get divorced is their world tends to get smaller. And, you know, the, you, you lose friends and family through the divorce. And so you really need to rebuild and, and build a new network of people. And the good thing about dating these days is we have online now, which we didn't have when I was in my 20s. And it opens up a lot of possibilities. And a lot of people lose self-confidence after a breakup. Or they might be suffering from a broken heart, and they think they don't want to really go on to somebody else because they're having a hard time getting over the last person. So so what was um, kind of, let's start with the worst. What was your worst date ever? 
I've had, unfortunately, a lot of contenders for that. But, I mean, I've had, you know, strange dates where, you know, I had one of the first dates I went on. I was with a a lawyer who was a patent lawyer who, you know, was telling me that he had ESP and eventually started texting me that um, he had... (laughs) He had met a, a female wolf at a wolf sanctuary, and he had a special relationship with her. I've met some bizarre people. Stay away from the patent lawyers, I guess. Is that advice? Um, so what was your best, and now you're in a relationship, or you ju- you've just started a relationship. So I gather that's the number one. But what was your yeah. best date otherwise that of somebody that you didn't end up with? Um, well, you know, I I ended up for two years dating a wonderful man who turned out to be a Hollywood director. And I, one of our best dates was actually in British Columbia. We were up in Tofino and we got in a float plane with a picnic lunch and landed on a private lake and and had a picnic lunch with a bottle of wine. That was memorable. Yeah, I guess. Um, That sounds lovely. Uh, So what, what advice or what wisdom uh, would you give to people out there, men or women, looking for love in all the wrong places, <laughs> thinking that they're too old or that they're they're not worthy of love or that they're not good enough or that they have that they don't think it's worth it, that they think going it alone is better, when a lot of the research tells us that going it together uh, is actually far more beneficial, especially for your health. Well, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think you have to have a really honest conversation with yourself. And if you do still believe in love and partnership, then you need to make a serious decision. You need to choose not to leave it to chance and to say, I'm going to make this a priority in my life. And I'm going to go out once or twice a week and in the same way that I brush my teeth or go to the gym and, and to live with intention. You know, you don't have to push too hard. You don't have to be looking around every corner thinking that you're, you're going to maybe meet somebody. But you also have to decide that you're going to keep trying. And would you tell your friends and family, hey, I'm on the market. I want to meet somebody. Can you help me out? Absolutely. I mean, that's how a lot of marriages and, and relationships used to come about. And, you know, so there's, a, you know, there's really three options. There's telling your friends and family and and saying, hey, if you meet, if you know of a single person, keep me in mind. You can also try online and you can just get out there. And I think the, the other thing that I haven't mentioned, which I think is really important, is that you don't have to go out with a gang of men or girlfriends. You can go it alone. You can go by yourself as a man or a woman and meet people. You can meet men or women. You can make new friends and you're actually more approachable now when you're by yourself. Okay. Um, what percentage of the men that you met were married? <laughs> mm, there was, I would say maybe 10, well, maybe not 10, maybe 5%. Okay. Um, so- yeah. And I think that's the important thing too, is to, if you do decide to, to put yourself online, be honest about your true marital status and all of that, because people coming out of divorce often have a lot of, you know, scar tissue and you want to start things off on the right foot you want to be honest right that's the only 
basis for a healthy relationship. So I had a patient one time and she had three children and, and she was, um, you know, she put, basically she did her online profile. She wanted some help with it. And I looked at it and I said, well, you know, you're actually five years older than this and you don't mention that you have any children. Um, this is a few years ago. And, you know, and, and I'm here and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where I am on whether mentioning children or not, but, um, you know, they were, they were a little bit older and, and so, but she wasn't truthful. Uh, so would you recommend, uh, people to be truthful and honest about every aspect of their life? Absolutely. Because what's going to happen is that's all going to come out. That's all going to be vetted in the first hour, usually. Right. So there's no, there's no point in the bait and switch. And you know what, there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of about being a particular age or being a parent or not. This is about finding someone that you're truly compatible with. And so go into it being proud of the life that you have. And so you've traveled a bit. Um, so where would you say are some of the best places in the world to find love or at least, you know, a little spicy encounter? <laughs> so I would say, you know, don't go pick a couple's resort in the Caribbean and go as a single person. I've I've met a ton of people. I travel a lot and I tend to have the best luck meeting people in um, cities. So, uh, for example, Copenhagen, Lisbon, Hong Kong, London. Um, I, I even was I even had a date in Java in Indonesia when I was traveling with my daughter when I least expected it. I mean, it's you can meet people anywhere. You certainly can. And, um, you know, I appreciate all of your advice. For those of you who don't have the funds <laughs> to travel to Java um, or Indonesia, <laughs> you can r- look no further than your own backyard. Holly Martin, our time is up. Thank you so much. She is the author of Would It Kill You to Put on Some Lipstick? One Year and 100 Dates, How to Look for Love in Your 40s and 50s. Thank you so much for a very inspirational uh, interview for a lot of those people who are out there who are lonely and looking for love. Thank you so much, Maureen. You're welcome. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath in the final stroke of the program, and we're going to be talking about strokes. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about stress, which is a bit overrated. And, you know, there are so many people that are so stressed. I can call people and the answer is like, I'm so busy. I can't talk right now. And they have this sort of self-important component to their level of stress, dare I say. So that may indicate that it has an addictive quality to it, stress, or that chronic over-busyness that happens. But there's some recent research or a new study in the journal Neurology that reinforced the reality in a very elegant and powerful way. And it noted that people with higher levels of the stress hormone cortisol have subtle reductions in brain volume. Now, there is a time that, uh, you know, so many women in their chronic over-busyness would go to off to their physician and I would hear about the physician said they had high cortisol levels, they needed to take this supplement, which is garbage. Uh, what they needed to do was actually manage their stress and have some coping strategies and some tools in order to do that. And because cortisol levels don't just elevate for no reason. And so you actually have to get rid of the source. 
what is more relevant with the elevated cortisol levels is, and the uh, reduction in brain volume, is that there also seems to be slight reductions in a person's performance on memory tests. This study was carried out by researchers from Harvard Medical School and in collaboration with the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Boston University School of Medicine, and the University of California, Davis at Sacramento, and UT Health San Antonio. So some pretty high-level universities there. The team looked at data from the Framingham Heart Study, which has been following participants and their offspring since the 1940s. The focus was on people who were middle-aged. So the average age was 48. The people were healthy. None of the participants in this study had any signs of cognitive decline. The participants in the study had their cortisol levels measured and correlated with their performance on memory and cognition tests, as well as their brain volume was measured via MRI. And it turned out that the people who fell into the highest third of cortisol level had reduced volume in the frontal and occipital lobes of the brain. And they also showed changes to the white matter. So when you have changes in your frontal lobe, you may have changes in your emotional expression, problem solving, memory, language, judgment, and sexual behaviors, people. What I talk about a lot on the show. So this is critical that you manage your stress because all of this there's a good chance that it could be affected. And you might notice that even on a short-term basis, that your control panel of your personality and your ability to communicate actually decreases when when you are stressed. You might have difficulty finding words or whatever. So the the study also, as I mentioned, showed there was reduced volume in the occipital lobe of the brain, lobes of the brain. And, And so when you have... Uh, issues in the occipital lobes of the brain, that is the area of the brain that accounts for vision. And there is a type of dementia that affects vision. It's called posterior cortical atrophy. And it's difficult for people to see things, uh, difficult, difficulty driving. And this is associated with stress. It's not definitely cause, you know, causation, but This is just another reason to protect your brain and to keep your brain safe from stress. The behavioral results um, are at least as important. So the people with higher cortisol levels also performed worse on memory tests. And the memory tests were things like copying a shape that was presented to them or being asked to recall a story after a 20-minute break. And the effect was stronger in women than in men. But that's not clear, of course, because we don't study women that much. Did I say that earlier tonight? Um, But it could be that women are more stressed or that they're more susceptible to the effects of stress. Today, women are working inside and outside of the home. I don't care how much housework you do, sir. (laughs) Women still have that responsibility. They are thinking of the kids all the time. They are uh, constantly, they've got the kids on their mind. They've got their, maybe paying the bills on their mind, keeping things going, keeping the momentum in the house on their mind. The men have the sex on their mind. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, But it's possible to have brain changes without cognitive changes. And the fact that these participants did not show slight memory deficits may be telling. 
Other research has suggested that chronically raised cortisol levels has a range of negative effects on everything from your weight, your waistline, sleep, your ability to think, your ability to speak, and as I mentioned, a particular type of dementia and the uh, PCA, posterior cortical atrophy, and likely uh, other types of dementia like Alzheimer's. So where everybody is aging, um, you know, living longer, uh, aging Uh, They'd love to be aging gracefully, but we need to understand cognitive aging with the amount of people who are entering that demographic, that over 65, in the next 10, 15 years. And so we want to look at the increasing stress on modern life, not to mention the addiction that we have and and addiction to iPhones and smartphones and and iPads and computers. I mean, you walk down the street and there'll be eight people in a row. You count them, do a little OCD test, count them. They're all looking at their phones walking down the street. It's, It's amazing, really. Um, we're teaching our children instant gratification. Uh, they're not going outside and playing. They're looking at their iPhones. I mean, this is a risk factor for a large group of people, every many different demographics from the millennials to the baby boomers and beyond. So higher morning cortisol levels in a large sample of people were associated with worse brain structure and cognition. And that is pretty much the results of this study. Although it didn't look at cognitive decline or dementia, but likely they will be looking at that uh, in the near future. There were a couple of flaws with the study. A lot of studies are flawed. One was that the cortisol was only measured once and not over time. And it was not also clear whether the people with higher cortisol levels were actually more stressed out subjectively. So that's something else to consider when you go into your doctor and you're actually okay, or you go into a quote unquote, natural path, and you're okay. And then they report to you that your cortisol level is high and so that you'll need to take their little mineral substance or whatever it is and pay $80 for that bottle. And you don't even need it. So it's not definitive here. It's possible that there's a more complicated relationship going on here than just stress leads to problems. We all have stress. Sometimes stress makes us more successful. Sometimes stress makes us get that project done. But it's important that you manage your stress. Everybody's going to have it. Nobody uh, goes without stress. Uh, Nobody goes unscathed in terms of stress in life. And it's how you look at that. A lot of people go to worst case scenario in their head immediately. If you're that type of person, be mindful, use mindfulness, be aware of that. Um, But it's important that, you know, if you are stressed, it's important to know that you can manage it and maybe reverse some of the early cognitive changes, um, you know, in in your brain. Um, So what we know about cortisol and the effects of chronic stress these results make sense. A casual, a, a causal relationship makes intuitive sense. Being stressed out all the time makes it harder for you to think efficiently. So take a look at your chronic stress. Get out there, get, start exercising, cut out the sugar, cut out the alcohol, meditation, mindfulness meditation daily. And, you know, this fast-paced life that we are all leading actually probably means more stressed. And when you're stressed... Cortisol levels rise because of that fight or flight response. And then if trouble comes along the way, in addition to your chronically busy life, then, you know, you've just compounded the problem. So if, if a person feels threatened in any way, and, and 
our threat, our threats today are much different than in the past. But, you know, if a relationship breaks up or you're heartbroken, your cortisol levels go up. It's never too early to be mindful of reducing stress. And that is advice for your children and for you as well. Because the other thing is, if you're stressed, stress is contagious. If you react in a stressful way to a problem in life, your children are going to follow that as well. If you have anxiety, they're going to have anxiety. Anxiety is contagious. Deal with your own issues, manage your stress, manage life, enjoy life, and uh, live it well. I am Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. (laughs) Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you all for your emails. Got an interesting one, which I'll read shortly. But right now, I last week we spoke about uh, medical cannabis, which is confusing in and of itself. Um, and I just wanted to continue that conversation a little bit. Uh, I turned a lot of people off to um, to me, <laughs> not to cannabis, um, because uh, of my desire uh, for research in the area. And so I just want to explain a couple of things. Number one, uh, although many states in the U.S. have legalized recreational and medical cannabis, it is still federally, it is still a Schedule One drug. It's a narcotic. So it's very difficult to actually run RCTs, randomized controlled trials, which is what you need to actually see if something works or not. We had a lovely lady on the show last week. She had used a type of uh, vaginal oil, cannabis oil, that had some THC in it. It was called Ms. Envy. It's no longer available, so don't look for it, because of because cannabis has now become um, legal in recreational cannabis is legal, and now they're waiting for their licenses and so that before they can sell these products. But she said she got a headache afterward, and we discovered that this had a percentage, a certain percentage of THC in it. And so what worked for her? Was it the oil or was it the cannabis? We don't know because it hasn't been studied. I had callers calling in saying that, um, you know, that cannabis, how can I, how dare I say there's no research because there's no research. Um, but how dare I say that because cannabis works for migraines and COPD and asthma and shingles and chicken pox and, you know, the laundry list. And so that's also your clue that it doesn't work for everything when, uh, something is claimed to work a hundred percent of the time for every single condition. And so hopefully with the fact that medical marijuana and recreational cannabis has been approved in Canada across the nation effectively and that it's not considered a schedule one drug, we can clear the smoke, if you will, and lay the groundworks for some decent, unbiased clinical trials. And so to see what it actually works for. So a very interesting documentary on Netflix. I think it's on Netflix. It might be on YouTube. Don't go by me. Losing the memory a little bit. (laughs) Is called Chronic State. And it's actually, you know what, there's some biases in there. But it's another perspective on legalization uh, five years after Colorado legalized medical marijuana, cannabis, medical cannabis. That's confusing too because it's like medical cannabis. That means it's good for you. That means it's healthy. Uh, so using using that term medical with uh, marijuana says, you know what, it's okay. And, and so, you know, I, I'm not 100% that I agree that... Uh, Cannabis should be legal, but you know what? It, it, what's done is done, and what can you do? Uh, but I certainly wouldn't try it 
myself for a medical condition without some decent science behind it. But you know what? Certain people have, and certain people have tried it at this station. And uh, one of one of the uh, well, the top guy at the station who has a fabulous podcast. Uh, called When Life Gives You Parkinson's was having some difficulty sleeping. I suggest you go and listen to that podcast because it's so interesting. And if you're interested in health at all, you will learn not just about Parkinson's, but about so much else. And I learned a little bit about cannabis from Larry Gifford, who uh, hosts that podcast. Um, and it's available on iTunes and Apple and Google and wherever you get your your podcast, where you download them. But he tried um, some cannabis because he didn't want to try a pharmaceutical because of the laundry list of side effects with a pharmaceutical. But, you know, at least a pharmaceutical has been tested. Um, You know, and some doctors would recommend a certain type of pharmaceutical, but, you know, some may recommend another. And, you know, not not everything works for everybody and you're not going to get all the side effects that are listed. But nonetheless, he tried cannabis to sleep and it actually didn't really help him uh, as effectively as he would have liked to. Did you listen to that podcast, Andrew? Have you heard that one? The the most recent one on his sleep? Sorry, the the which one, sorry? um, On uh, Larry Gifford's When um, Life Gives You Parkinson's podcast. Have you heard the latest one on, on sleep? Because sleep is a huge issue for so many people. And so he tried that. And, and he's going to do another little study, his own little study, um, and of one. Citizen uh, science. Yes, absolutely. Of uh, one month with uh, pharmaceutical and one month with uh, medical cannabis. And so I'm interested to see how that works out. Actually, but, yeah, that is good. I'm wondering what the difference is going to be there. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. It'll be very interesting. All I hope is that he gets a good night's sleep. Because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't cope without... I, I mean, I sleep like a, a log, uh, like a rock. I might wake up in the morning and think, what's bothering me? Oh, right. But I don't let anything bother me wow. at night. I do. I refuse. I can't. I have to be, you've got to be on when you've got, you know, you're, you're managing multi, that, that's a, a multifaceted life. That's a skill <laughs> to be able to not let things like, I, I'm sure I speak for the majority in saying like, sometimes getting to sleep is just the worst. I know. Never, never. But you know what? I'm did, jealous. Did you actually swim? <laughs> Do an open water swim today? And uh, the- I took the stairs coming up from the train station. After so. a hike? No. <laughs> so, you know, you're bit, well, you know, I do a lot of physical activity <laughs> yeah. and, I'm, and I'm busy with work and stuff. But, but nonetheless, I did want to point out that, you know, one way we can do some research, one way we can look at this is... Um, retrospective chart reviews, for example. So so looking back and seeing some of the trends. And so researchers note marijuana has a potential link to stroke, and that is owed to cerebrovascular effects of cannabinoids. There was a five-year study of hospital statistics done from the U.S. looking at a period from 2010 to 2014. It demonstrated the incidence of stroke had risen steadily among marijuana users, even though the overall rate of stroke remained constant over the same period. Period. This study was prevented in Montreal at the World Stroke Con- Congress this week, and and so it's very interesting to to have these people that are are touting that me- medical marijuana is great for everyone, and so everyone is going to try it when there may be an incidence of uh, a higher incidence of stroke for you. So this study examined 2.3 million hospitalizations. That was over a four-year period, and that was among people who use cannabis recreationally. Believe you me, you do not want to have a stroke. It is. It will impact your entire life. That's why you want to keep your blood pressure at 120 over 80, and you do not want to be smoke, taking the risk of recreationally smoking marijuana. 
uh, it found that 1.4% of those, or about 32,000, had a stroke during that same period. When you are the person who is diagnosed with a stroke, it is 100%. The rate of stroke for marijuana users increased over the period from 1.3% to 1.5%, while the prevalence of stroke among patients nationwide was stable. We are talking about 2.3 million hospitalizations. That is a very robust retrospective chart review. Cannabis has the potential, according to this study, to stroke, it has the potential link, I should say, to stroke owing to cerebrovascular effects of cannabinoids. And what happens is there is a there is a vasoconstriction and a vasodilation effect that cannabinoids has been found to have. And so that alteration in the your blood vessels actually places you at greater risk for stroke. Anyway, just something we're going to continue this cannabis conversation, I am sure. And I'm going to have Larry Gifford on the show to talk about his, his fabulous podcast and... Um, uh, and all of what he has learned and how he has shared all of this new health knowledge um, with the listeners to the podcast and certainly has been a guest on a number of the shows on here on the Chorus Radio Network. I do want to read, uh, I want to thank you, Andrew, so much for once again a bang-up job as usual. It's from, always a pleasure. Oh, thanks so much. I really love having you here and um, you're, you're always tr- tremendously helpful. People don't even see what you do behind the scenes. <laughs> I hide. Go to my website. No, you don't. Go to my website, Back to the Bedroom Follow me on Twitter. Yes, I'm on Instagram. And you can go to iTunes. This is a free download. But I want to read an email. Hi, I like your show, but you need to play some boom, boom music. Come on now. Shake a leg a little bit. Thanks. Brett. Thanks, Brett. I, I was just thinking about this. We got to add some more music. We used to play the music, Andrew. And now this is for Brett. <laughs> I have the taste of a teenager in terms of music, and you have the taste of a 55-year-old, you said. It's true. <laughs> anyway. Like, play me some Phil Collins any night. Oh, my gosh. There you go. Can't hurry love. <laughs> okay, Brett, send us some suggestions. We'll play them, baby. I'm Maureen McGrath. You've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight, my friends. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.